to the Imposter Syndrome podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about rejection and failure and making those unwelcome comparisons with our fellow academics. So discussing this with me today are Dan Quintana and Siri Lechness. So Dan Quintana is, I'm sure, known to most of you who are followers of the Everything Hurts podcast, which Dan hosts with James Heathers. Dan is a senior researcher at the Department of Psychology in the University of Oslo. He leads a lab investigating biological systems that link psychological and social factors to health with a focus on neuroendocrine systems such as oxytocin and the autonomic nervous system. And he's also done wonderful work, whether he's through his blogs or published papers on sort of giving gentle introductions to rather difficult and tricky, but nonetheless very useful statistical analysis techniques and ways to sort of build networks and create impact via social media. An example of which is his recent book, Twitter for Scientists, a guide to boost your academic career. And he's also done several talks for another initiative that I'm part of, which is the, the Riot Science Club, and he's given talks on synthetic data and open science there, so please check those out. He's joined by Siri. Siri is a professor at the University of Oslo as well. And her research is looking at subjective hedonic feelings associated with rewards and punishments, social reward and individual differences in the subjective experience of pain and pleasure. She directs the Lechner's Effective Brain Lab, which is funded by the European Research Council. She earned a PhD at the University of Oxford, where she was mentored by Irene Tracy, who is now, I believe, the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford. So for context, Siri actually tweeted out an uh, annotated CV, and this CV contained all sorts of um, things that you would normally include on your CV, so grant rejections, publications that didn't get through, um, and failed uh, job applications. And I think that was kind of a, a brave, honest move by Siri. So thank you both for coming. So let's just start, dive into the interview. Yeah. So um, so my first question then is to you, Siri, which is about your, your CV. So maybe it would be useful for the audience to sort of um, know the context of why you did it, you know, what prompted you to do it, and then we'll sort of take it from there. Sure. So I was uh, um, I was on Twitter. Oh, I love Twitter, and uh, there was a tweet from the um, conference effective uh, science, basically saying they needed people to talk about failures, <laughs> and uh, and I just you know on a sort of whim wrote, well I I had twenty straight rejections from Norwegian Research Council, you know, this account, and uh, they you know contact me afterwards and said would you do a workshop basically a salon at their uh, virtual meeting on rejection resilience in academia so it wasn't just about like basically failing it was also about like you know how do you get back up and this was a salon so it was a very sort of odd uh, format and I thought I'm not gonna make a powerpoint about my accomplishments and my lack of accomplishments I mean it's just it's really weird and then I thought you know what, I'll just publish my CV with the kinds of stuff that I would tell people that I would not normally write in it. 
and so that's why I called it the annotated CV because it basically just has my little comments instead of stuff I would just say. Like I got this many grants, but actually. So you go through lots of things, so grants, papers, and also jobs you applied for, and you also give reasons why. What is What was the response, you know, both on Twitter and your presentation? What did people sort of flag up as being a particular thing that, that resonated with them? Yeah, so a lot of people have brought up the grants, because I guess that, you know, a grant is just so, so, so much work, and, uh, you know, your chance of success is really low, so it resonates with that a lot of people. Um, they really loved uh, my personal favorite is the the grant where I was one of was the only one out of nine finalists not to be awarded <laughs> grants. <laughs> that is, uh, you know, it was uh, quite special. Um, but yeah, then uh, a few people contacted me and said thank you for showing that it's possible to basically have a family and have a life and do science. And I feel a little bit ambiguous about that one because I'm not sure that's really the what I've demonstrated to be perfectly honest I think you know in certain jobs yeah you can do it but you know obviously it would be much more sort of scientifically productive if you didn't have a life like it's no question about that yeah it, it, exactly and I have to say that the one dark cv that I would like to see is yours Dan so you you're either tweeting about a new paper or new grant you've won or a new episode of everything hurts which is a brilliant podcast um, I mean, what, was there anything particularly with series, uh, CV or maybe your own experience with rejection that, that, uh, is worth listeners to know about that you think is quite informative for them? Well, I am quite public about my rejections, both with papers and with grants, not to the point where I've put together a website like Siri. Um, I'm a little bit hesitant to do that, to be completely honest, um, because personally myself, I'm not, I'm not a tenured academic. So to have, I think, I think it's great that Siri's done this and um, having people who are a little bit further along in, in, in their careers sharing this stuff is incredibly important. I think for me, I remember one of my mentors a couple of years ago, um, I was sitting in front of his computer, you know, go, going through a manuscript and I, I saw a, a, a folder on his computer and um, it, was, um, it, was, it was a list of all these grant rejections. And I'm like, is that your grant rejections? He's like, yeah, this guy is, I, th I think he's officially the, the second most cited researcher in Norway. He's incredibly productive. And you kind of think that he just, everything he touches turns to gold. But to see this kind of stuff from someone that's so senior, such as himself, to see stuff like this from, from people like Siri, it's so encouraging, I think, for early career researchers. Um, but for but for me, I still do share this stuff. Uh, I, I I think it's super important to talk about rejections. I get paper rejections all the time. Um, one of my last papers, I think it went through seven desk rejections before it actually got sent out for review. And uh, for a lot of people, particularly early career researchers, this is a, this is a new thing. It, it always really surprises me. Um, I mean, I know getting rejections uh, really, um, that they, they suck, but it really surprises me to hear Earth career, Earth career researchers on, on Twitter um, talk about how, how horrible this is in, in the sense that it's like their supervisors didn't tell them this was a normal thing. So I think it's great for this sort of stuff to be more public. Uh, that you should be sharing all your rejections. But I mean, I, one, one thing I particularly like from from series CV um, was um, was that her ERC starting grant uh, originally started its life as a research council of Norway, <laughs> a, a rejected application there. And I think that's, that's really important to know or really important to consider is that 
I don't think there's really such thing as a failed application, a failed grant application. You can always repurpose these things into new applications. I mean, for Siri, it was, it was a very successful repurposing. Um, I've done the same thing myself. Um, my, I had a rejected uh, ERC application, but that turned into a successful research council application. Um, and you can always repurpose these things. But of course, these things absolutely hurt. Um, but uh, they happen all the time. And I think it's very important that we do share these things. Being in a position to sharing your um, failures, I think this touches on a larger point, which is basically like I wouldn't have written, I wouldn't have gone public with all of my failures if I didn't have a sort of very prestigious ERC grants. Um, you know, because like nobody, you know, is very gratified from just seeing you fail all of the time. Like you actually also <laughs> have to do well here and there, right? Um, and so, yeah, and so basically, I guess people have different points when they feel like, all right, it's good enough. I'm happy to just share this. It's a little bit like sharing code, isn't it? Like, you know, how good does it have to be before you're ready to show it to the world? Um, and I guess for some people, that's still never. Yeah, and I guess this is touching on two things. Uh, sort of how do you cope with rejection, sort of how to keep going forward? But also the the fact that you are academics are terrible at comparing themselves with one another and one way they do that is through you know people's success rates so this is a question for both of you really uh, I guess Dan if you want to sort of you can get the ball rolling so you can talk on any of those things you know how do you deal with rejection but also you know how do you avoid making unwelcome comparisons I guess you just need to expect that rejection is just part of academia it's always going to happen. Um, just having that expectation going into paper submissions and going into grant applications. Most journals publish their success rates. This percentage of papers are going to get sent out for review. This percentage of papers are going to get accepted. So being realistic in that way is one good thing. It's the same with grant applications. The success rates are public. So knowing that from the forefront is also uh, good to know. Uh, we had a talk from the Research Council of Norway or some from the Research Council of Norway um, who, who essentially said, yes, this is a lottery. Um, the way that the Research Council works is you get a final grade between one to seven. So essentially they said anyone who gets a seven or almost anyone that gets a seven, their grant will be accepted. But, that, but that's like, what, four or five percent of applicants. Um, however, um, about 20 percent of people get a grade of six and those people, it is essentially a lottery. So knowing that is quite, <laughs> it's quite reassuring knowing that, hey, even if it wasn't successful, uh, I mean, it sucks, but it, it's also good to know that this is the, this is the reality of how, uh, of how particular grants are chosen. Uh, in terms of comparisons, I think social media is both a blessing and a curse. It's great because we can actually see people's rejections. Just, just think, you know, 20 years ago, we really wouldn't have a clue that this would be happening unless we were lucky enough for our mentors or people in our department to actually say, hey, yeah, I've, got, I've, I've been rejected from that journal X amount of times or I haven't been successful with this funding agency before. Um, but now we actually do have social media that we can see other people's rejections. But at the same time, we also see everyone's successes. Um, you know, the, every day I'm thrilled to announce. Everyone, everyone's, everyone's thrilled to announce their papers or grants and, and, and awards. And everyone just shares their highlights. And because these things tend to get liked um, and because people tend to respond, congratulations. Congratulations is a magic word on Twitter because it pushes tweets up in the algorithm. So as soon as you see a congratulations, then you're going to see this thing. 
And because somebody somewhere around the world is going to have a paper accepted or win a grant or win an award, so you're always going to see things in this in, in your feed. So it gives you an unrealistic sense of actually what's happening in that um, pe people have people are getting rejected all the time with their papers and with their grants. So if we're using social media as that kind of barometer, it is so far off. And that's something I have to remind myself as well. I see all these incredible papers getting published and thinking, gee, how do they do it? Or I, I see these people like d doing all this really, really, really cool stuff. But it is only, it, it's their one highlight. Maybe this is their one home run paper for the year, but we're seeing everyone's one home run paper because of the way that the algorithm works. The algorithm loves likes, it loves, it loves it when you say congratulations. Um, it loves tweets that get a lot of responses and a lot of engagement. And those things get pushed up. So even if you're not actually seeing these things and they're people that you don't follow, you're going to see these um, these sort of announcements all the time. So I have to even remind myself that all the time, um, despite knowing that that's how the algorithm works, I have to remind myself that it's just not a reflection of reality. Uh, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes it gets me down seeing all these people announcing, I've just got a tenure track job. I'm like, gee, another person got a job. Uh, you know, all, all, all these, these people are getting all these fantastic opportunities, which I haven't been getting, but I just have to know, hey, this just isn't the reality. And uh, it's, it's the algorithm showing me stuff that gets engaged with a lot. So is the take home that when people tweet about their rejections, you should reply congratulations to push <laughs> the algorithm? <laughs> that's going to get pushed up. That's, that, that's the key. That's, that's a good take home. Hit yeah. that like button. I mean, that's the, that's the clip for tweet. Uh, definitely, uh, Siri. What what are your thoughts on on again the, the the rejection and how to deal with it, and also comparisons with with other academics? Right. Well, so um, I recently uh, uh, joined the ranks of people who sit on these grant uh, committees, and that's extremely instructive. You've always heard this, um, you know, phrase, oh, you need somebody on the, on the sort of committee to fight for your grant. And that's because most of the time on a grant committee, what you do is you look for flaws. So whenever you get really nasty feedback and you're just like, they just looked for flaws. Like I answered that. That's entirely correct. That's what we do. Um, and because you basically, you, you're forced to sift out, you know, 90% of, of the applications and most of them are really good. Um, and so I think, you know, that's one thing that it might be, I mean, it's, it's depressing, but at the same time, it's sort of semi-democratic in the sense that it can really truly happen to anyone, which, you know, back to the lottery um, analogy. And then in terms of of comparing yourself to others. I think one of the one of the sort of motivations that I still have, obviously, you know, people, people are amazing and they do really exciting research. And sometimes that's inspiring and sometimes it just makes you feel like black inside, right? Uh, but I think one of the interesting questions is, you know, what, you know, there's a lot of research now on all of the biases and how it sort of shapes and accumulates over time in terms of of you know who gets cited and what work gets cited. You know, there's a new paper floating around Twitter now saying that if you if you do research on like fem female topics, you're like, you know, you're cited less, your chances of success are less. And it's sort of all of this stuff adds up. So I think I'm kind of I'm interested in the strategies that people use to be able to make sure that when they do good research that this actually gets the attention it deserves. Um, and so that I guess I'm at a stage where that's kind of what I'm concerned about. I'm sort of wondering, all right, well, so we have to play the game to some extent because we have to, I don't want to do good research that, you know, sort of just, you know, becomes a little isolated, right? So there's Siri, some interesting mechanisms there. Siri, I was wondering, did, did this sense of comparison change when you got tenured? 
Well, for me, basically, I got tenured uh, and got two babies at pretty much exactly the same time. So everything changed and I never slept again. <laughs> it's a little hard, to be honest. <laughs> so sort of my what you would have thought, like my sort of gratitude and relief at having gotten a tenured position, it was it was actually I basically went from doing full time research because obviously sort of during those years you you do usually don't have any teaching. So you just, you know, you have an immense amount of freedom. You don't have a boss. You don't have uh, that many obligations. So I went from that and then I got a tenured position and I returned to work with two babies at home. I had not slept for eight months. And I had to do a lot of teaching. And they <laughs> they stupidly start you off with like a, a teaching deficit. So you start with like minus 500 hours every, every term. <laughs> and, and I was like, I didn't get large enough raise for this. You know, like I, only, I only got like a tiny bit more money. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure. And I'm, you know, maybe I'm just in a, a good phase right now. We finally, after, you know, several pandemic years, you know, finalized the big data collection. We're sort of, we're like getting close to publishing a lot of papers that we haven't, you know, published, you know, that we wanted to publish for a long time. So um, maybe I'm just uh, painting a rosy picture because I'm in a, you know, it's spring. I'm happy. <laughs> and, you know, and I want to portray myself as somebody who's like, oh, no, I'm, on a, I'm not in it for the personal glory. I'm in it, in it for the science. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I, I honestly don't know, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the interesting things uh, that I thought about recently in, in relation to this imposter um, uh, sort of podcast was that um, my PhD supervisor, Irene Tracy, is has just been named the next uh, vice chancellor of Oxford University, which is a big deal, and uh, she told me that she has imposter syndrome. I mean, she told me that after she'd been, you know, attended professor at Oxford University for a really long time. Um, and uh, and also her husband is an incredibly accomplished sort of climate scientist. He also has imposter syndrome, and I find that really fascinating. It doesn't seem to completely go away, uh, even you know at the sort of top echelons of everything. It's interesting what you said, Dan, and I hadn't really thought about this. Is that you know you you have to be careful of how many you know rejections you're public about for the reasons you describe. I've heard some people say. Actually, we should encourage people to put it on their CVs, so at their actual CVs rather than their dark CV. The argument is it shows how productive you are, right? It shows that you are applying for grants. How do you feel about about that? I think it is a good thing to include the amount of grants that you're um, uh, applying to. People recognise that grants can be extremely competitive. So the fact that you're demonstrating I'm applying for these things is a very strong thing. Um, I think it's also a good thing, um, you know, if you have a long list of, of, of preprints on your CV, um, as well as demonstrating your productivity, that also, if, if you have a preprint that was uh, published in 2017, um, obviously that has been rejected a lot of times, um, but it actually shows you that, um, so that, that sort of demonstrates rejection, but at the same time demonstrating the work that you're actually doing. So that's one way of actually doing that. Um, I always, I think it's a great idea to post your preprints on your CV. Nothing, nothing's worse than having someone going, pa pa papers submitted or this, this many papers submitted. Um, you know, I, I saw a fantastic tweet from, from Dorothy Bishop and she was like, I was just, I was assessing these PhD students and, and so many just, just to explain that they've submitted three papers and they're under review, but without a preprint, I can't actually evaluate them. 
So one of the main things I, when I talk to, to early career researchers, I encourage them, um, you just, you gotta be submitting preprints, especially when you're early in your career, because we know that these things can take a long time to actually get, um, to get peer reviewed and, and chances are they're gonna get rejected a few times. But once your preprint's out there, at least that's the, that's the demonstration of the work that you've done. Yeah, I agree. As to whether you should write down all of your failures on your CV, no, you really shouldn't. Um, you really shouldn't. Obviously, I wouldn't ever submit my dark CV to like, you know, to any kind of competition. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but what you can do is, you know, put a kind of positive spin on it and be a bit like, yeah, so I wrote this, you know, I wrote this grant or, you know, I wrote and it was rejected from there. But then, you know, I adapted it according to comments, etc. I mean, there, yeah, there is there is definitely stuff that you can do that shows how much effort you're making. But I have to say, there's also a really huge differences in, in how people engage in this stuff. Like I think when I sort of try to give career advice to people, I, I probably wouldn't recommend writing as many grants as I've written. I've probably written two grants a year for the past, I don't know how many years, since 2010. Um, I mean, it's probably probably shaped by the fact that the first grants I wrote in 2009 was, was uh, you know, um, funded. And then I sort of, I got very optimistic and I sort of didn't learn, <laughs> learn from my mistakes. Uh, but it did take time away from writing papers. And obviously you need the balance to be right. You need enough papers so that your grants will be, you know, evaluated positively. Um, and, you know, I've consoled friends who basically have been, you know, devastated that they had a grant rejection because they'd only ever written one grant before. And it was, you know, they just assumed that they would keep getting funded at the first try. And there are people like that. And yeah, we should not follow them on Twitter because that is very depressing. Uh, but finding your own balance and also figuring out how, you know, how much you like writing papers versus grants versus doing the other parts of the reset process. Uh, that is probably helpful. So you said, Siri, you wouldn't recommend doing more than two. What's your strategy at the moment? Uh, mm, good question. Uh, so I had a really wonderful, I was very popular with my family this year because I didn't write to the Norwegian Research Council and everyone's <laughs> extremely pleased. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess this year, I mean, sort of with, within our group, we'll probably write a few, but I'm not necessarily writing them myself or, or sort of any big ones. But I mean, we sort of, I added up the time that, you know, the, the you know, um, Maria Kimon, Gerudas and myself spent writing what's sort of known as my ERC grant. And uh, the preparation time is, you know, it's pretty much like nine months. Uh, so I'm obviously can't do that every year. You'll never get any work done. And I guess there's the other pressure as well is once you've got a lab with, uh, with people that you want to keep in your lab, the, the pressure isn't just winning grants so you can do research, it's winning grants so you can keep your staff on as well. And this is something that I'm beginning to think about as well. I've got some fantastic PhD students. I would love to keep them on, um, but now the pressure's on to actually get, get grants so I can keep them on as postdocs. And uh, it's really tricky. It's really tricky. So I have a really wonderful boss in my part-time position at the hospital and he tells me this is, you know, he's like, I used to lie awake at night worrying about, you know, grants for myself and now I lie awake worrying about, you know, positions for the people on my team. So, yeah, I mean, at the moment, I'm actually sleeping really well. We have a, but, you know, it will change. I am told that uh, one of the criteria of grant uh, panels is the demonstration of sort of independence and a sort of a departure from your your 
PhD supervisor's work or your postdoc supervisor's work. But how you demonstrate that is a bit of a, a mystery to me. On the one hand, you're told that, you know, papers with other people or papers on your own or papers where you're a senior author are kind of evidence of independence. But, you know, you've spent years cultivating a collaborative sort of network of, of people in your lab. And so, you, you, you know, you don't want to cut them off completely. And it's a question of what, how you prioritize your time. So I guess it's, you know, how much do I have to care about trying to show my independence and, and exactly how I do that is sort of a question I find I'm asking people and people are asking me. So, again, thoughts well, some grant agencies are very explicit with this. With the ERC, it's a demonstration that that um, you, you you have a certain amount of papers without your without your main PhD supervisor. So that is that is independence. Um, for other places, um, other places it is that you've moved, and I think that's terrible. A lot of people cannot move for a variety of reasons. Um, perhaps they want to be close to their family because uh, of because of because of chronic illness, or they just don't want to move because they love their city. So I think moving town from your PhD to your postdoc is is a, is a terrible way to to demonstrate independence. But I think you can demonstrate independence um, by by having um, by publishing with different people. Uh, one thing could be a sole author paper. I understand that could be tricky in some areas of research, um, but it is always possible. If any area of research to write an opinion paper or to write a review paper by yourself as, so, as, a, as a sole author to demonstrate you can actually have these independent ideas um, or you can publish with different people that isn't your PhD supervisor. But I do understand that in some areas, the, 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 the research fields are incredibly small, um, so it can be very hard to, to demonstrate independence from, from different people or from people that you previously worked with. Um, but yeah, I, I wish more agencies and more uh, employees were explicit about what constitutes independence and that it wasn't the fact that you've moved. I was very lucky that I was able to move and it was very it was very straightforward for me. Um, my, my wife has Norwegian family here, so it made it a little bit easier for us to move. Um, we weren't just, just you know, um, we weren't uh, thrown in and, um, you know, um, had to sort of find our own way. We had, we, had, we had a lot of help in that way, but for a lot of people, this simply isn't possible. So, yeah, it can be tricky, but uh, I wish more places were, were more explicit about this. I have some thoughts about this, actually. I think uh, I would tackle that question head on. I would actually address it, like maybe even in your CV, in the bit where you write about your publications. I would, you know, just count, basically, to say I have, you know, I have this many papers without my PhD supervisor, this many papers without my postdoc supervisor. I don't think anybody cares about postdoc supervisors, actually. Uh, so it's mainly, uh, at least I've never heard of that. Um, and uh, And even if it's just one, then you write about that one. You sort of, you know, and you hype it up and you say, this is this amazing work that I did, you know, then sort of we're showing a completely new, new direction. Like you can actually, if this is a concern, then I would, I would just tackle it head on. Um, there's something else I was going to say. What were we talking about right before? It was uh, moving, it was independence. Oh yeah, there, there, there is a, a sort of a related topic, which isn't really about exclusion criteria, like grant agencies and stuff. Just about the perception in the field. And obviously, if you work with very influential people in your fields, people will typically associate with you with that mentor, whether it was a postdoc or a PhD mentor, uh, for quite a long time. And people do this mainly for reasons of, you know, failed sort of memory capacity. And so you do, you know, essentially, if you work with really, really good people, you'll have to work harder to show, to sort of take yourself out of their shadow a little bit. 
but on the other hand, you've probably got some career help from working with very influential people. So it probably sort of overall, you're still in a net positive, I would, I would imagine. That's a really good point because I essentially had to move away from Sydney um, because my supervisor was the oxytocin guy. Great guy. I, st- I still chat with him every now and then. But if I was still in Sydney, I could never, I could never get out of that shadow. It just, it just, it, it, it wouldn't be possible. Um, so moving overseas actually quite helped that. Yeah, we're talking a little bit about that sort of with, uh, you know, the, some of the people that I work with in the lab have. We've worked together for a really long time, and we're sort of talking explicitly about: is are there ways that we can keep working together, uh, you know, without risking that somebody sort of associates sort of their work or attribute that work to me? And we also have a collaboration with a very senior person in a in a different country, where for a while there, I was really concerned that if we work together, everyone would just assume that he did all of the work, you know. And and yeah, and that is, I guess, that is the price that you sometimes pay for either working with influential people or just working with people for a long time. Yeah. But I like what you said that I think that even if you have one or two of uh, publications or work separate from that person that you work with, at least that shows, Hey, I, I can, I can do this. Uh, I can, I can work independently. Um, but it, yeah, it can be tricky because like, like why should you work with different people if you're already working so well with the people that you, that, that, that they're working with at the moment? Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's weird. It's a, it's a weird expectation, but at the same time, it's still it's still important that we do demonstrate this. I think the benefit of working with different people is that you do learn from those different people, right? So you don't end up in sort of in a rut. And I guess that's what you know these elusive permanent positions, at least the sort of Norwegian system, you actually have a sabbatical baked into them, right? So you're actually every seven years or so you're supposed to go somewhere. And learn something I didn't know how to do before, um, and I, yeah, I think that's that's a sort of you know that's the best part of academia, I think, in that sense. Then um, I feel sorry for you because you're forever going to be associated with James Heather's, aren't you? <laughs> forever, I'm, 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 I'm never, I'm never going to shake that guy. <laughs> um, one thing that was mentioned in your annotated CV series is this idea of sort of having a mentor so you could be in a really shitty place you know institution wherever but the, the saving grace is a really good mentor and I guess um I don't know whether there's much conversation to be had there but you know I guess what you know one question could be you know you know for for like-minded mentors that do want to sort of support their junior staff you know what they what could they do you know whether it's having open and frank conversations about productivity and 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 grant success or or other things to sort of deal with the things that we've discussed i actually think one of the most useful things that i've sort of gained from my sort of formal and informal mentors is is actually just finding out what grants there are and like what conferences you should go to what journals they think are important, what what grants you could aim for. Um, and certainly with some of them, they have very specific formats um, and you kind of, you yeah, like I don't know if any people can write them at all without having seen some examples. Um, and so that's certainly a service that I think mentors should pay, but those mentors don't have to be in your institution. You can literally cold email anyone that you think does really exciting research, explain who you are and what you do, 
you can either explicitly ask them to be your mentor or you can just ask them questions. And, you know, sometimes people are too busy, they won't respond, but a lot of the time they're, you know, they're going to basically remember having been in that position and they're going to respond. Uh, so that, that would be one recommendation. Obviously, now that there are conferences again, you can also approach people at conferences, etc. But yeah, you can never, I mean, I don't think you can have too many mentors. They don't have to be formal mentors, but they just have to be people who like tell you what's what. Yeah, it's super important. Like you need to see, like, I don't know how you could write a grant without seeing, seeing an example of, of that grant that's been submitted previously. Uh, and I've, I've been really fortunate that to, to have mentors that have gone like, here, here are my successful grants that I've submitted towards um, to, to, to this scheme. And then you can begin to see the structure. Um, grants have a special language and every grant call has its own special language in itself. So learning those things it's hard. There is, there is no guide. It's, it's part of the unwritten curriculum that not enough people get access to. Um, but, um, yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to be able to get those examples there, which has been, which has been a big help. And in that regard, I try and bring my team along for the ride in terms of grant applications, then help me out. I think you, of course you do the same thing yourself, Siri, um, of getting these people to help out with the grant. So they be actually begin to learn. That's how I learned because, my old mentors back when I was a PhD student and, and, and a postdoc, um, or particularly more when I was a PhD student, um, I, I helped out with the grants. It was a lot of work, but I helped out and I began to learn how these things actually work. So I'm trying to do the same thing myself with my own students of like, hey, hey, can you help pr- proofread this or check the check the flow of this and get as many people as possible to, to have a read and get feedback. The worst they can say is no, or they can ignore you. Um, and um, yeah, get, getting those examples. I mean, I, I recently submitted an, an, um, an ESE grant, um, and um, I, I heard there was someone in the department that was sort of in the in the in the final round. And um, I, I asked him, "Hey, can I have a look at your grant?" And he was, he was like, "Sure." Uh, he actually went on to win it, <laughs> the, the 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 consolidator. So that was the, hopefully that's a, that's a good omen. But um, anyway, it's just you just got to ask the question. Um, the worst people can say is is no, and getting your hands on as many of these examples as possible. Um, but also being that person that can that can help out as well, because what you think is simple knowledge isn't necessarily simple knowledge or straightforward knowledge for other people. For other people, this is like completely new. So that's why I think it's important to share these types of things. But I do find it interesting that sort of the whole kind of open science movement isn't talking very much yet about about like how much it depends on who you know, right? Like for instance, you know that the entire American system is based on like letter writing. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> It's like the antithesis, I think, of what sort of open science is all about, right? Like you have to basically have good relationships with everyone you've ever met so that they write really, really nice letters about you. So I'm on a, I'm on, I've been on some uh, like award committees where we have Americans writing, you know, award letters and oh my God, you know, I have an academic crush. I'm like, I'm completely <laughs> swooning at reading these letters. And I'm just thinking no European could ever write a letter like this unless they tra- trained in the, in the US, right? I mean, so that's a very extreme example, but I think the fact that you won't really be able to write a competitive grant unless you've seen somebody else's grant is a, uh, it is a, a problem and there are ways around it given that the system is the way it is, but ultimately we, we probably should work to change the system. I believe there is an online resource where people have submitted their grants. I don't remember the name. Uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure it can be found online, but um, I know that, that, that there's one for, for different agencies where you can actually see examples um, for all different, all different agencies where p- people have submitted that, um, which is which I think is gutsy because like it's kind of the, it's kind of your special source. 
Um, and it's, I'm all for transparency, but, but, but for me, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know. Um, but of course, I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy to share this within sort of my, my own team and for, for other people that I know. But uh, yeah, that resource is there. It's, it's uh, what I can say. I mean, I can't speak for, for, for seeking collaborators, for grants or mentors, but what I have found is a nice byproduct of pre-registering, whether it's a systematic review or meta-analysis or a study, is that because it's publicly there, and if you are interested in that area and you end up finding it by doing a search of some sort of pre-registration registry, so Prospero, for example, I've done it before, and I found people doing a review that I wanted to do, and then I just emailed them and said, is there anything I can do to help? And they said yes, and now I've got sort of, I'm on two papers because of that, which is really, really a nice story, I guess, of the unintended consequence of, of just being public, even just your pre-registered protocol that you can just get people who just want to help out and get on a paper. Yeah, I think that's great. That's really inspiring. And I mean, a lot of the time, you know, people do do exactly the kind of work that you want to do. And uh, yeah, and sometimes they're stuck and they need, they need some help getting it finished. And the other thing is... Um, is how to get on sort of grant reviewing panels. Yeah, actually, I want to, um, I, I really want to know the answer to this question too. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, so I'm on uh, one grant, uh, basically a committee where um, I was basically suggested by somebody I know in the field who had been on the committee and was asked to make other suggestions. Uh, and presumably when I leave that committee, I will also suggest replacements, uh, you know, to the administrators. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think it's very much how you get onto these committees is very much part of the hidden curriculum. And it's not actually something that any of the mentors that I have um, have told me, but maybe I also haven't asked, didn't really think about it. Yeah, I've, I think for, for some agencies, uh, applicants are required to actually submit a list of, of potential people who could who would be qualified to actually review um, the, um, the, the applications. So I've, I've done a few different agencies. Um, but I have no idea how I got, how I got, got on these, got on these lists, but, uh, it's been, it's been really, really instructive on, on how to write a good grant and how to write one, which is, <laughs> which is also incoherent and very, very hard to follow. Uh, so yeah, I, so I think some agencies, you can actually put your name down to be a potential reviewer, um, which, um, I'm not sure which ones, but I know, I know you can do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, in a lot of other circumstances, you are, your name just gets put forward perhaps by the applicant or they just do a, a search of key terms to find out people who have expertise in the field. Yeah, so it's like kind of there are two different roles, at least two different roles you can play, right? You can be an expert reviewer, uh, which I think, yeah, it does work a little bit like being an expert reviewer for a paper. Like you, you might yeah. be chosen because you are simply a person who knows all about that field. Uh, but then to get onto the committee, that's right. Yeah, person in the room discussing who's going to get that grant. That's the bit that's like properly and transparent. I think. Yeah. yeah, I agree. But uh, a previous question I asked is sort of what do you do when when your grant or paper does get rejected? What would be your advice to sort of a junior academic who you know gets rejected and you know they can't get past it? Is there any tips, tricks, what you do, uh, you know, mental um, acrobatics that you do to, to sort of try and, again, keep going forward and just let it pass by? Just to know that it's going to happen. 
statistically, you're more likely to get rejected than get accepted, knowing that it happens to people that are much more senior and experienced than you, and that you can always repurpose your application into something else. It can always be repurposed into another paper or into another application. So it's although it feels like it, it's not uh, it's not wasted time. Yeah, I think Dan's point here is really good. Like if you put yourself into action mode, so you're sort of not just feeling rejected and like flailing, but you're actually like, okay, I'm going to do something with this. I'm going to make sure that it wasn't a waste of my time. I think that's a really uh, good advice. It's not something that I've followed particularly, but I still think it's good. Uh, so my personal coping mechanism is, um, and I do recommend that actually, is basically looking at the people around me, the people who collaborate on the grant, the people that I work with every day, and basically thinking about their competence and like what, how good they are. And then basically just inferring that if I work with that many brilliant people, I can't be a complete idiot. And probably, you know, the people who read, read that grant actually thought it was pretty good. You can always improve the grant. Like there are always loads of assumptions that you haven't spelled out. There's always loads of steps, etc. So you didn't manage to get your idea across very well, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the idea was bad. Although sometimes, if we are to be perfectly fair, it probably was bad. And I certainly, uh, I think one of the reviewer comments I once got was that uh, the entire grant was devoid of theory. And at the time, that made no sense to me. <laughs> I think that might have been your old uh, advisor, actually, Dan. But I'm not, I don't remember. <laughs> I think it had some oxytocin in it. Okay. And, and the thing is, like, in the, in the years that sort of came, I realized that that was entirely correct. And actually, you know, what I had was facing at the time was very novel. But because it was novel, it was also a little bit of a fishing expedition. And it isn't the kind of thing that I want to spend my time doing. So, you know, with time, you also come to sort of agree with your decisions but it would also caution strongly against you know like there will be a little list of maybe flaws of your of your grants don't put too much like don't give them too much attention because most likely the people on the committee were just looking for reasons to reject it and maybe the sole reason was that there was another grant that was close to their heart and their personal research interests and that's not a reason for you not to do your study and to just resubmit. Well, I think that about does it. Thank you so much for being brilliant guests and um, thank you so much, especially for being quite candid about your experiences with dealing with rejection. I know it's not easy to talk about and I think a lot of people will learn a great deal from this chat. So thank you all both and have a great weekend. Mm -hmm.